Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue in our studies in the life of Christ, currently going through, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, a message that Jesus gave, probably his best sermon that he ever preached, and we're going to look at uh, the last couple of Beatitudes this morning, blessed are the persecuted, Matthew 5. Verses 10 through 11. So let's begin with verse 10 of Matthew 5. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now many commentators consider the last two Beatitudes in verse 11 and 12 uh, as one, which is easy to see why, because they both speak about persecution. Even though the last two Beatitudes are both about persecution, there are two differences between them that are worth looking at. One deals with the description of persecution. The other deals with those who are being persecuted. The Beatitude in verse 10 describes persecution in general. and In other words, it says, blessed are those, all right, those in general that are persecuted. While verses 11 and 12 describes a specific form of persecution, which is a verbal attack on the persecuted. So whether you choose to make them one or two beatitudes, it really doesn't matter because the lessons are still the same. So we're going to look at the first persecution in general, the first persecution in general in verse 10. The nature of persecution here is learned especially from the meaning of the word persecuted. And the nature of the persecution will separate the men from the boys when it comes to being committed to holy living. The word persecuted here in verse 10 means literally to pursue, to make, to run or flee, put to flight, drive away, to run swiftly in order to catch some person or thing. To run after, to harass, trouble, molest one, to be maltreated, suffer persecution on account of something, to seek after eagerly, earnestly endeavor to acquire. So it has a pretty, uh, quite a long string of meanings here. Uh, uh, it's found in the New Testament lexicon by Thayer. Now, all of these meanings say that persecution is aggressive. They're pursuing somebody. They're after somebody. They're, 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 fly, uh, they're fleeing, at, fleeing after somebody. So again, it, 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 uh, this persecution is aggressive. It's on the attack. It's coming after you. The aggressiveness or the aggressive action of chasing down the persecuted is exactly what Paul was doing, remember? When he was chasing those that, that uh, were following Christ and he was bringing them bound to, to, you know, um, to Damascus. When he was confronted by Jesus, he was doing that. And when he was confronted by Jesus, Christ has had dramatically and radically changed his life. Paul was on the way to Damascus from Jerusalem to pursue believers in order to bring them bound to Jerusalem. And and Paul was engaged in aggressive action until Jesus changed his life. One of Ahab's servants, Obadiah, told this to Elijah in 1 Kings 1, 8 and 10. There is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. 
This is what persecution is. It's aggressive. And today, we are hearing more and more about the alarming rise in cruel persecution of Christians all over the world. Beheadings, torture, cruel imprisonment. Another side of the persecution is the word describes uh, past action continuing in the present. So this is another side of the persecution uh, in the word which prescribes past action continuing in the present. And is this still going on? This emphasizes the fact that persecution is still going on in our day. It's unrelenting. It doesn't just hit you once and then stop, but it delivers blow after blow until you can't take anymore. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we read this about the man who shall speak words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. The word persecute there means to wear out. Unrelenting, nonstop persecution will truly wear out the person who's being persecuted. Now, maybe we can take a punch or two, even though it's cruel and painful. But blow after blow after blow soon becomes, uh, be, begins to wear down a person and, and ultimately take them down. And the devil knows this. That's why he's relentless on his attack on believers. He relentlessly persecutes believers. And before the end comes, when the Lord returns, many are going to fall wounded due to the cruelty of Satan's power. And verse 10 makes it very clear what the cause of this persecution is. Notice, righteousness. He says, blessed, he says again, blessed are those who are persecuted, notice, for righteousness sake. There's the reason for the persecution. And we can positively identify who it is that's going to be persecuted and who will be the people that will do the persecuting. The ones who live holy lives are going to be persecuted. And that's why Paul was able to say or to prophesy. He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, notice, will suffer persecution. Now, a lot of Christians claim to be persecuted today. But when Peter was talking about persecution, he made it very clear about who is really being persecuted and who wasn't. He said in 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. The inference is if you're suffering for being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody, you should be ashamed. That's not being persecuted for Christ's sake. That's being persecuted for foolishness on your behalf. In other words, don't equate the suffering that somebody experiences because they have a misguided zeal, because they're not using wisdom, because they're, they're, they're lacking tact and good manners, or they're suffering from, from, from being strange or annoying habits in front of people. And then, you know, the people get on them for it and then they say, oh, I'm being persecuted. That's not persecution with what the Bible is talking about here in this beatitude. Not all suffering is a trial from the Lord. We can bring it on ourselves because, again, of, of, of not using wisdom 
or just being flat out, flat out annoying. You know, just bothering people and, and, you know, and just for the cause of Christ, if you will. Again, so uh, that that kind of treatment are the consequences of foolish behavior. For example, if a professed Christian breaks the law and they get into trouble or they become a busybody getting into other people's lives, then they should suffer. Just because we're Christians is no guarantee that we escape the normal consequences of our faults. You know, if we, we go into places and we're yelling, oh, shit, praise the Lord, and oh, I love Jesus, and you know, just, and, and though we do, and we do praise Him, but if we're going in, and again, we, we have that unbridled zeal, or we're just making a spectacle of ourselves, and people get, uh, you know, think, what's wrong with that person, you know? Hey, and, and then they say something, and, and you feel persecuted. No, it, it's just, you know, I'm being annoying, I'm being loud, I'm becoming a spectacle of myself. I'm not using wisdom in my you know, presentation of the Lord or in my witness. And, and we're, we're bound to be one way or there. You know, we're going to be persecuted, but if we're going to be, let it be because I am preaching Christ. I am being a godly example, but not because I'm, you know, just being annoying or not using wisdom. So again, a lot of Christian sufferings are brought on by our own faults, not because of our devotion to truth and righteousness. When you think about it, it doesn't make sense that good people should be treated mean because they're good or that they do good. The people that you would expect to be treated mean would be bad people, mean people. But you know, it, it seems to be the opposite. You know, when a drunkard gets saved or a thief or somebody that was always in trouble doing the wrong things, or an abusive husband gets saved, you'd think people would praise them for changing for the better. But instead, they're more likely to be teased or ridiculed for becoming a Christian, for becoming a church-going person, for, be, for, for being a, a Bible-believing man and a better person. But the truth is, holy living upsets those who are living unholy lives. Holy behavior is an abomination to unholy people. Solomon said in Proverbs 29, 27, He who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. And the unholy people will strike back when they can. Godly conviction your godly convictions will distance you from a lot of people. If you hold on to your godly convictions, it will distance you from a lot of people. They're not going to be want, want to be around you, even from some church people. Because you see, in their eyes, you take things too literal. You believe what the Bible says to the end. And, and Proverbs 29, 27, which we just read, that helps us to understand why good people are persecuted. Because righteousness is an abomination to the wicked. It's because bad people hate that which is good. They call good evil and evil good. Now, they might, you know, try to hide their hatred or disguise, disguise their hatred as being something else. But deep inside their heart, the ungodly hate righteousness. And you'll often find the persecution of righteousness will come from places that you never expect it to be from. 
Some of the worst persecution has been experienced by the church at the hands of religious people. It often comes from so-called Christians, and all you have to do is read the history of the church. The first case of persecution was Cain and Abel, if you will. Cain was a religious man, but he wasn't a righteous man. And in some cases, the persecutors will be so twisted in their thinking that they will think that they're doing God a service by persecuting the righteous like the Apostle Paul did. Jesus said in John 16, too, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. When a preacher preaches a high standard, and if it's a high standard, it's the word of God. If he's preaching the word of God, he's preaching righteousness. uh, And some of the congregation gets upset and attacks the teacher. They have just let everybody know about their own unrighteous life. I used to go to a church when I used to live in some mountains up by the grapevine, and it was a little community church, and it was pretty much run by the people, the founding fathers, if you will, of that church. And, and I remember the pastor there pretty much just went with the flow. That pastor left, and the pastor came in, a really good pastor, he came, he came out of uh, Master's College, from uh, John MacArthur's uh, school there. And he came in and he, he brought the scriptures in. But he had a very difficult time. And I remember his first Easter there, the people wanted to have a champagne brunch at the clubhouse. Pastors, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have a champagne lunch at the brunch, brunch at, the, at the clubhouse. And the people said, oh, yes, we are. And they started getting people on their sides and everybody's voting. And, and, they, and they said, they went up to the pastor, look, we built this church. <laughs> because they were the ones who, you know, helped build it, you know, financing all that. This is our church. We built this church. And we're going to have a champagne brunch. Make a long story short, he didn't last long either because he wasn't going to stay in a church where, you know, the, the people uh, felt they ran the church again because they were, the ones who built it, and they'd been in there longer than anybody else. But again, that's the way it goes sometimes. Good people, though, don't get upset when goodness is honored. The more strongly a minister preaches the word of God and comes down against the evil sins of that day, the more contempt was going to be poured out against that preacher and his preaching. But there's encouragement for the righteous man. There's a great reward for the righteousness that he, he, that he lives. There's a great reward for those who continue to endure and stand up for righteousness' sake. And Jesus said in verse 10, he said, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a great thing to look forward to. But, again, one of the difficulties in looking forward to the promises of God is that when you're going through persecution... Persecution has a way of making all of God's promises seem doubtful or hopeless. That's why the persecuted person going through persecution needs some assurance of the promised blessings of the Lord. When a promise is mentioned often, when it's repeated often, you see, it helps to assure those that are persecuted of the promise when they're in the heat of the battle. So that helps them to keep going. 
They hear it over and over again. You know, I'm going to keep going because I got a promise. I got a promise in heaven. You know, and I keep going and I keep going because I'm going, I'm heading, I'm looking for that promise in heaven. Keeps them going. The persecuted person might be suffering at the moment, but you know what? They're going to reign later. And they're going to reign, and their reign's going to be forever, and it's going to be with the Lord. And they're not going to experience any more persecution. Let's look at the ones now in verse 11 through 12. And, and Jesus says here, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now these two particular verses, 11 and 12, about persecution show us the different sides of persecution. Remember, verse 10 spoke of persecution in general. Those who lived righteously would be persecuted. Now, this one speaks of a a specific kind of persecution, which I said earlier is verbal assault. This persecution here is directed to you. Notice in verse 10, it was directed to those. Here it's directed to you. Now it becomes personal, not general. Jesus said, blessed are you. When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, the word revile shows us the goal is to verbally shame somebody. It means to cast in one's teeth. In other words, it's to cast insults is to throw abusive words in the face of an opponent. That's what it means here in verses 10 and 11 and 12. It means to cast insults is to throw abusive words in the face of an opponent. It's to mock them viciously. It's reviling that's done in presence, in our presence, to our face. They often wait until their object of hatred is in public. Those who are going to persecute, those who are going to give these verbal assaults, they usually wait until we are in, in, in public. Then they verbally attacked us with all kinds of verbal abuse. And it's done to shame us. It's done to shame the one that's being persecuted in front of all of the people they're around. To be an obedient believer of the kingdom of God is to patiently receive verbal abuse and reviling. Remember Jesus, our perfect example. When he stood before the Sanhedrin after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus was spit on. He was beaten and mocked with words. In Matthew 26, 67 and 68, remember, he, they, they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? After he was being sentenced to crucifixion by Pontius Pilate, Jesus was beaten again, spit on and mocked again, this time by Roman soldiers. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We read in Matthew 26, uh, 62 through 63. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it? These men testify against you. But Jesus kept silent. Verbal persecution isn't just done to publicly shame somebody, but it's a favorite and frequent trick or practice of those who use a hateful tongue to attack God's people. 
the word persecute in verse 11, it shows us the severity of this verbal persecution. In verse 10, we said that the word meant uh, severe hostility and cruelty. It describes pursuit with intent to do harm and injury and even death. Now, this verbal attack in verses 11 and 12, it's meant to result in more than just cutting words. But it's meant to end in action that will harm and injure the one that's being persecuted. And as we mentioned in verse 10, this word says the persecutor continually pursues the attack. He continually moves to attack. The persecutor is aggressive on top of being abusive. Look at what it said in verse 11. Jesus said, and they, and they will say all kinds of evil against you falsely. In other words, they'll bring all kinds of slander against you. Persecutors don't have any concern for the truth. They are not concerned for the truth in the least little bit. They hate righteousness. They hate the righteous. They hate those who follow Jesus Christ and they don't need truth to accuse. They will make up and they will falsify the worst kind of lies. We saw that when they were trying to get witnesses for Jesus Christ. They came up with all kinds of lies and blasphemy. This is wicked slander directed against the godly and it's wicked. This this speaks of slanderous insinuations and accusations made against those who belong to Jesus. And even though we're careful to keep our character unblemished, and even though we live in a close fellowship with the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter because we will be accused of all kinds of evil. They will make up whatever they have to to put us down. Our motives will be questioned. Why are they doing that? You know, what we, what we do, it will be misrepresented. And they'll spread nasty stories about us. You see, the nearer we live to Jesus Christ, the more sure we can be that these things are going to happen. We see them happening today. Jesus is our perfect example of this. No one was lied about and slandered about more than Jesus Christ. He was accused of being an an illegitimate child in John chapter 8, verse 41. He was called a Samaritan in John 8, 48, a half-breed. Several times he was accused of being demon-possessed. And at the crucifixion uh, trials, he was accused of blasphemy and condemned to death for it. And when he was on the cross, they still continued to attack him verbally. In verse 10, the cause of persecution was for righteousness. But here in verse 11, Jesus said, notice, it's for my sake. You will be persecuted because of me. But you see, there isn't any difference between righteousness and Jesus because they're both the same. Righteousness comes from Jesus. Jesus is the representation of righteousness. He's the incarnation of righteousness. The heart of the issue is Jesus Christ. The hatred, the heart of the issue is Jesus Christ. You see, the more Jesus is seen in us, the more that Jesus is in us, the more we will be hated by the world. And the more we will hate the world and the more we'll hate the things in the world. 
You see, if you want to not suffer persecution and you want to suffer no, a lack of trials or tribulations, you know, just, just deny Jesus some. Withdraw from him a little bit. Because if you take Jesus out of the picture, you will stop a lot of persecution. You will stop a lot of attacks against you, a lot of trials and tribulations. If you want less persecution, less problems in your life, then have less of Jesus in your life. I don't recommend it. But I hear a lot of you know, people, oh, man, I'm going through so much. And well, you know, the Bible tells us we're going to. But if you want less trials, have less of Jesus. Satan will leave you alone. You know, the reason that 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 so many different religions are, are, are being you know, popularized and being allowed, you know, in, in schools and in, in government is because they don't talk about Jesus. You know, I was asked to pray at a, at a city council one, meeting one time and they didn't want me to pray about Jesus. I said, well, then I'm not going to pray at the council meeting. I will not let anybody dictate to me how I'm going to pray. Period. The reason that Islam the Muslim's religion can be taught in schools, but Christianity is forbidden is because Christianity is about Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know where the, saw where the, the Pope and some imam in the last week got together and were making this covenant, covenant to, for, for, for more religions to, to be at peace with one another. And the Pope said basically that... that that the, the God of the Muslims and the God of the Christians was the same God. Dead wrong. If you ever notice, the cross is the only symbol of Christianity. And as Christians, we need to become more and more aware of that. Did you see on May 9th, the House Democrats picked an imam with anti-Israel views to give the opening prayer in Congress? And more and more of that you see happening in our government and in our cities. Because it's not about Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter who prays as long as you don't pray in the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't bother people when Islam is present. Or any other religion because it doesn't include Jesus. But Christianity is all about Jesus. The Masonic Lodge gets all upset when somebody prays in Christ's name. They don't mind prayers as long as Jesus isn't mentioned. Check the cults and do the Christ test. The Mormons replace Christ now with Joseph Smith. The Jehovah Witnesses attack the deity of Christ so earnestly that they came up with their own, well, they call it a Bible, the New World Translation. They come up with their own book, let's call it, to change the verses so that it doesn't speak of Christ's deity. The Unitarians got their beginning by attacking Christ's deity. So you see, the issue is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. So those who honor him, they will be subject to persecution if they truly honor him. Preach Jesus in truth and sooner or later you are going to feel the heat of the persecution. You will heal, feel the hate. From those who hate Christ. 
A.W. Tozer said, The man who preaches truth and applies it to the lives of his people will feel the nails and the thorns. But even so, we wouldn't normally expect to hear this kind of, of command from Jesus to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because you're being persecuted. Sounds kind of odd considering the circumstances. Notice Jesus didn't say pray when you are persecuted. He said rejoice and be glad. Even though we should pray when we're persecuted. But he said rejoice. But how in the world is that possible when I'm being persecuted? Truly persecuted. Well, we always have to keep in mind that, that, that God doesn't command us to do something that we can't do. The enablement to do what Jesus asked to do comes with the command because, again, he's not going to ask us to do something we can't do or that he's, not going to, that he's going to enable us to do. The disciples rejoiced, remember, in the early church when they were persecuted? When they had been put in prison and then God, you know, God got them out, they were divinely let go. Then they, they, they went before the Sanhedrin and they were beaten. And in Acts 5.41, it says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In Acts 16.22 and 25, it says, A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, remember? And the city officials, they ordered them to be stripped and to be beaten. And they were severely beaten. They were thrown into the prison. And the officials ordered the the guards to make sure they didn't escape. So what did the jailer do? They put them in the inner dungeon, the lowest part of the dungeon, and clamped their feet in stocks, which was very painful. But around midnight, Paul and Silas were crying and whining. No, they were praying and praising God. Singing hymns to God. And here's the thing, it said the other prisoners were listening. So the disciples prove that it's possible to rejoice in the midst of persecution. Peter wrote this later on in 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. This may sound like a dumb command. Oh, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you're persecuted. But always remember, nothing Jesus commands is dumb. God is all wise. And we'll see in a little while that this command was a valuable command like all of Jesus' commands are. God wasn't telling those who are persecuted to smile every once in a while, but to rejoice with cheerfulness. The words here, uh, exceedingly glad, means to leap for joy, to show one's joy by leaping and skimping, indicating excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. There's one thing for sure about this command. You have to be very spiritually minded in order to get this excited and joyous over persecution. As I said earlier, this will separate the men from the boys. Our commitment to him. So this command will reveal our spiritual weakness, our deficiency. It rebukes our lack of spirituality and our lack of devotion to the Lord. Now, persecution, hey, it can make us bitter. It can make us resentful. 
It can give us a complaining heart, a complaining attitude, which is not honoring to the Lord. But if we rejoice in persecution, it will help, to get, help us to get rid of that Lord-dishonoring attitude. Rejoicing in tribulation will keep us from being like the Israelites in the wilderness who complained every time some kind of trial came up in their life during their journey. Oh, we don't have water. Oh, we don't have this. We don't have quail. We don't have meat. We don't have that. And on and on it went for 40 years. Rejoicing is the key to keeping us at our duty when we're persecuted. One of the evil effects of persecution is that it takes, away the, it takes the believer away from his divinely called service. It'll, it'll cause us to quit serving God. Sometimes the persecuted person gets so busy, you know, answering the accusations against them, defending themselves against, you know, the charges or the accusations, trying to save their reputation when they've falsely been charged. That, that they get away from their witness. They get away from doing their duty. At other times, the bitter spirit is, is, is a huge hindrance to carrying out one's duty. It's a huge hindrance also to their devotion to the Lord. But rejoicing will do a lot to overcome that temptation to desert your calling and to desert your devotion to Jesus. One of the reasons why the persecuted person can rejoice is because of the reward. Jesus said here, your reward is in heaven. Your reward is in heaven. All the rewards that God gives aren't here on earth. Jesus said that this reward is great. The word great means many, many. And it's used to express a large number. God is not a cheapskate. God is not stingy when it comes to giving out his rewards, but it shows great wealth and generosity of God. Every drop of blood, sweat, and tears that we suffer in the service of the Lord will not be forgotten, and it will be justly rewarded of the Lord. Your reward is in heaven. So if the reward is in heaven, guess where you're going to be? In heaven. Obviously, you'll be in heaven. When persecution comes, it's easy to lose sight of the promises of God. It's easy to lose sight of heaven. But with this promise of heaven, Jesus is helping the believer to think about eternity. And I think that's a big problem today, that that too many Christians aren't heavenly minded. Because they're too earthly bound. Paul said, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is is, but for a moment is working for us a far Uh, more exceeding and and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We need to be looking up more. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to quit. It's easy to run. We have all faced problems in our relationships. 
or in work that have caused us to just about give up. But rather than quitting when persecution comes, and rather than quitting when, when persecution wore Paul down, he concentrated on the inner strength that came from the Holy Spirit. We can't let fatigue, pain, or criticism or anything else negative force us off of the job. We need to renew our commitment to serving the Lord Jesus Christ, not forsake our eternal reward because of the intensity of today's pain. Your very weakness allows the resurrection of power, uh, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to strengthen you moment by moment. Remember Paul, what he said in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 about when he was praying for the thorn in his side. And Jesus didn't answer the prayer. He said, to, he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul got that answer, he said, so now I am glad to boast in my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ can work through me. He said, that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ because when I'm weak, then I am strong. If I try to do it in my own strength, I'll get nowhere. But immediately I recognize I can't do this. I need Christ. You see, God has an an affinity for weakness. Jesus' promise of heaven is to help the believer keep his focus on his life after, on the life after. Persecution will be unbearable if we only look at it here and now. And then Jesus gave an encouraging comment to those who were persecuted. He says, they persecuted the prophets, notice, who who were before you. Jesus identifies those persecuted now with the great prophets of God who had come before them. He puts those being prosecuted now in the same company as those great prophets of old who were persecuted before them in spite of their reputations being slandered and destroyed. God praised and commended them. In closing, Jesus said, Rejoice when we're persecuted for our faith. Persecution can be good because, number one, it takes our eyes off of our earthly rewards. Secondly, it strips away superficial belief. Third, it strengthens strengthens the faith of those who endure. Fourth, our attitude through it serves as an example to others who follow like Paul and Silas in the prison because the prisoners were listening to them. And we can be comforted knowing that God's greatest prophets were persecuted like Elijah and Jeremiah and Daniel and many others. Also those in Hebrews chapter 11. And the fact that we're being persecuted, it proves that we have been faithful. Faithless people won't be noticed. And in the future, God will reward the faithful by receiving them into his eternal kingdom where there is no more persecution. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring to the end. Enduring is not the means of salvation. 
Enduring means I am saved. I will endure to the end because of my Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you again for this, these last beatitudes, God. And Lord, it is quite a life, God. These beatitudes, fathers, again, a they are something that we are. Not just a list of things to do, but people that we are to be. God. And then it can only happen when Christ is found in me, when his disposition is allowed to live in me, that I will live him. I will be like him and I will be a witness to him. And we can only do it through Jesus Christ. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and, and you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, ha- you, you can't live the, the, the power of the righteous. That you can't seem to get it right. You can't seem to break the bonds of sin. And the habits of sin. It can only happen in Jesus Christ who defeated sin on the cross. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you're here this morning and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to know that on the day you die that you will enter into heaven with all the saints from before. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way toward the steps up front. And when you're there, I'll meet you there. And at the end, we'll say a simple prayer of faith.